Well, good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to this Book at Lunchtime event on Compassion's Edge, Fellow Feeling and Its Limits in Early Modern France, written by Professor Catherine Ibbett. My name is Philip Bullock, and I have the great privilege of serving as Director of Torch here at the University of Oxford. I like presenting all Book at Lunchtimes, but it's particularly nice to be able to present one written by a colleague in my own faculty, Medieval and Modern Languages, to see so many people here from across the university, but also from their faculty. So welcome to you all in whichever capacity you are here. I'm delighted to welcome Catherine to speak about the book, and also on our panel today are Theresa Bejan, Emma Clawson, and Lorna Hudson, who will be chairing the discussion. Published in November 2017, Compassion's Edge examines the language of fellow feeling, pity, compassion, and charitable care that flourished in France in the period from the Edict of Nantes in 1598, which established some degree of religious toleration, to the official breakdown of that toleration with the revocation of the edict in 1685. In a moment, I'll hand over to Lorna, who will fully introduce the book and the rest of the panel. This will be then followed by a brief reading by Catherine. Then our commentators will present their thoughts about Catherine's book, coming at it from their particularly particular disciplinary backgrounds. We'll then allow Catherine to engage in dialogue and response with the questions that they've raised. And we will have, of course, the chance to hear your questions, comments and observations. It's a great pleasure to be able to introduce the second book at lunchtime of Trinity Term. This is our flagship event series taking the form of fortnightly bite-sized book discussions with a range of commentators. Please do look out for future events, including the event in a fortnight, Veteran Poetics by Clayton McLaughlin. And keep an eye out on our newsletter and social media for other events. So all that's left for me to do is to thank you all for coming and to introduce our chair. Norma Hudson, Merton Professor of English Literature, Fellow of Merton College. Her research centres on the literature of the early modern period in England and the complex interrelations of literary form and other forms of cultural practice. Her books include The Usurer's Daughter, 1994, Rhetoric and Law in Early Modern Europe, 2000, The Invention of Suspicion, 2007, and Circumstantial Shakespeare, 2015. Recently, she's edited the Oxford Handbook of English Law and Literature 2017, which won the Roland Bainton Award for the Best Early Modern Reference Book. She's also a Fellow of the British Academy and Director of the Centre for Early Modern Studies here at Oxford. Lorna, thank you. Thank you very much, Philip. Uh, well, welcome, everyone. Um, I think what we're, I'm going to do is just introduce um, our panel and um, then uh, we'll, we'll proceed. So. Um, we were here to discuss Compassion's Edge, um, which is a book which ranges very widely over genres and contexts and geographies. Um, in this book, Catherine reads epic poetry, novels, moral treatises, dramatic theory, and theological disputes. Um, Catherine is a professor of French in the Faculty of Medieval and Modern Languages and the Caroline de Jager Fellow and Tutor in French at Trinity College. Her research focuses not just on literature, but literature, culture, and political thought. Previous publications have included a book on tragedy on Pierre Corneille and theories of political action, and a co-edited volume, Thinking Through Walter Benjamin's Concept of Trauerspiel and its relevance to a French corpus. Um, currently, Catherine is working on a book on the writing of water in early modern France and its territories, from the lyric poets of the 16th century to the Mississippi settlements of the 1700s. Um, our res an another respondent is Teresa Bejan, uh, who is Associate Professor of Political Theory in the Department of Politics and International Relations and Tutorial Fellow in Politics at Oriel <coughs> College. 
So Teresa's research brings perspectives from early modern English and political thought, English, English and American political thought to bear on questions in contemporary political theory and practice. And her book, Mere Civility, Disagreement and the Limits of Toleration, examines contemporary calls for civility in the light of 17th century debates about religious toleration, which speaks directly to uh, Catherine's book. Teresa is currently working on her second book, Acknowledging Equality. Emma Clausen is a career development fellow at New College, and Emma works on literature and thought in the early modern period, with a particular interest also in politics and moral uh, philosophy. She's currently writing a book on 16th century uses of the word politique and the attendant conceptions of politics, political behavior, and correct political action. Her next project will explore the intersection between moral and biological concepts of life from 1550 to 1650. So um, this is our panel, and the way we're going to proceed is that um, Catherine is going to read um, a little bit from the book, and then we're going to have Emma um, as <laughs> responding. And then uh, um, I think it's me then, and then you, Teresa, sure. that's how we're going to yeah. go? Yeah. Okay. So Catherine, would okay. you take Thank it away? Thank you so much, Lorna and everyone. Thank you to you all for being here, and especially to these three for agreeing to think through the book with me. Um, this is book is about the limits of fellow feeling, but both in the conversations I had while writing it and since it's come out, I've been ever more conscious of the extraordinary fellow feeling available in the intellectual communities I've been lucky enough to be in. Um, I was asked to read from the book, um, and uh, that's a useful way for me to remind myself what it's about, but also to respond to the cover, which you have here, this kind of picture of angry Andrew Murray, Andy Murray. Um, so the book begins with uh, an account of that picture, and I'm just going to read a little and then talk about the sort of historical framework of this work. So a man fixes his gaze resolutely on something beyond the edge of the page, his eyebrows drawn together in concentration, his eyes downcast, his mouth slightly open, somewhere between apprehension and alarm. This is a sketch in black chalk by Charles Lebrun, Louis XIV's favoured painter, gathered in a collection used to teach other painters the proper representation of the passion, so how to produce them in their own images. The drawing was not included in Lebrun's original lecture on this topic in 1668, but by 1727 it had been bundled into a volume with those that were, and coupled with a text narrating it as compassion, a label many subsequent critics have resisted on the grounds of the subject's fierce and unyielding aspect. So there's a little squiggle <coughs> that you can't make out that says comp in the top right-hand corner, and many critics have argued that it says composition, right? so a drawing rather than a picture of compassion. Indeed, the head is very distant from our imaginings of the compassionate, especially the compassionate as framed for us by the sympathetic and sentimental 18th century. And this, is, this book has a large gripe with the 18th century. <laughs> Yet within its 17th century context, the man's unyielding aspect is easier to understand. This drawing represents the austere masculine compassion that's central to discussions of the emotion in the 17th century and far from our current softer understandings of the term. So in Compassion's Edge, I restore, quite literally, the severe face of early modern compassion and suggest that we lose something if we turn away from its historical significance. As Philip said, this is a book about the period from the wars of religion in France to the revocation of the Edict of Nantes to the breakdown of the toleration um, that's imagined to be brought in after the wars. It's kind of about the affective undertow of, of uh, the history of toleration. 
It's not a story, though, about compassion overcoming difference. It's about compassion reinforcing divides. Where that 18th century literature of sympathy is often imagined to usher in newly communal concerns, and there have been lots of arguments about the 18th century novel uh, paving the way for human rights and so on, in earlier texts, the language of fellow feeling marks or even brings about isolation. So instead of being a precursor to 18th century sensibility, early modern compassion, I think, stands as an evidence of the persistently painful residue of France's wars of religions. Um, it, a little like Teresa's work on civility, I think it's important, uh, it was important to me in this project not to leap from antiquity to enlightenment in an account of this political emotion, right? Um, in the way that uh, somebody like Martha Nussbaum does when she sketches a sort of political theory of compassion. So my goal was to push at the religious mess of the 17th century and to suggest that thinking about that mess um, gives us a perhaps a murkier picture of uh, difference in our emotional response to social difference today. In distinguishing between the deserving rather the, undeser the undeserving, so the, um, the kind of key term of the book is that something is worthy of compassion, that's a key 17th century term. The 17th century, perhaps as we do today, assessed suffering within a differentiating and distancing structure. If com we might com imagine compassion as ideally able to broker a bond to serve as what John Staines has called a model for public politics. But it also, in 17th century France, returned its, insistently returned its feeler to a sealed off space of reserve. And its publicness served chiefly to reinforce already existing categories rather than to broker any new settlement. Far from reaching out to the others for whom it feels, compassion keeps the others at arm's length. And that's what I call compassion's edge, that distance. I should say, I started thinking about this book re a really, really long time. This is a book that germinated and, um, and stuck around in, you know, what will be my future project on compassion? I, I started noticing a language of compassion when I was a graduate student um, in the, the uh, Bush son years, when Bush talked a lot about compassionate conservatism, right? That's mm -hmm. in fact taking up a language of his father also. And I became interested in the relation, therefore, between compassion and action, what it would mean to be compassionate and not to act. So if initially I looked at early modern compassionate inaction in a slightly chiding way, following on from those years, feeling shamefacedly that compassion then and now should do more, I also came to be interested in the ways that compassion's sidelining of us, its, its making of us as spectators, creates a particular kind of aesthetic world. And I gave the example in the introduction of Samuel Beckett's Not I of 1972, in which Beckett describes an onstage auditor who makes a repeated movement consisting in a simple sideways raising of arms and their falling back in a gesture of helpless compassion. It lessens with each recurrence till scarcely perceptible at third. These scarcely perceptible gestures of compassion, a bit like your mere civility, are also operative in many of the texts I read in the book. And I started to try and think about that helpless compassion and the kind of literary forms it shapes, as well as the scarcely perceptible spaces for gestures of fellow feeling carved out behind compassion's edge something that in a scarcely perceptible theoretical conclusion, I called compassion's inoperations. And I'll finish by saying that if it's, this book started um, 
because I was cross with Bush. Um, it, it came out, and I think it indeed came out because, in rather kind of embarrassing ways, because of the refugee crisis. So when I wrote to Jerry Singerman at Penn to say that I, I had this book project, Jerry had always been elaborately disinterested in things I was doing before. Um, and he said, terrific, this is, this is really the moment um, to, to, to take up this, this question. There's a, 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 I trace the history of the Protestant refugee in this book, and suddenly... Uh, that made it a moment for him to publish this. Um, so I will say that I never meant the book to be so relevant in its account of uh, toleration being turned down and compassion being inoperative. Um, I, I was not exhorting us uh, to this situation. But I'll turn it over to you. Thank you, Catherine. Um, I think we'll, we'll um, have Emma's response now. Okay. Um, thank you. Th uh, thanks, Catherine. Um, it's a real pleasure to be here to talk about this book. And I'll start somewhat sycophantically by saying that when I first tried to get a hold of a copy of it at the end of 2017, it was actually sold out. And I think that that's rare, rare for academic books. I think that's just what an event that in, 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 uh, this book is. Um, there are many exciting things about Compassion's Edge. Um, for instance, the way that Catherine demonstrates the long shadow of the wars of religion in French writing and the integration of dramatic and moral theory. I think I'm going to touch on those things in particular in my response. And my response is kind of one of those sort of a question, sort of a comment. <laughs> um, I'm familiar with that. Yeah, point. yeah, but hopefully a, a more compassionate version, version of that. Um, so one of the things that I found arresting is the dynamic between optimism and despair <laughs> in this in this book, uh, you, you acknowledge at the start that Compassion's Edge is not overly cheerful about, about compassion, and it is chastening to be confronted with the limitations and drawbacks of attempts at fellow feeling. Still, thinking about the book again for the discussion has made me feel more hopeful about non-italicised Compassion's Edge. I was always hopeful about the book. Mm -hmm. um, so the slow, reflective compassion practised in early modern France, then, as Catherine has said, is predicated on a kind of distance. Um, so I suppose the first response is like how, how this changes what we think reading is in, beyond um, a particular historical period, although using the material of that period to think about that question. So it's made me rethink the immersive and potentially narcissistic aspects of reading or watching a play where the reader and or spectator identifies passionately um, with the character's emotions. Early on, the book deals with the Aristotelian convention that a person watching a tragedy feels pity because the characters suffer something that could happen to them, that could be me. Um, but in fact, dealing with the enormous range of dealing uh, of treatments of Aristotle and of pity and compassion in 17th century theory, theory, we find that compassionate spectatorship also offers varied ways of acknowledging and accounting for the fact that the suffering person is not you, it's never going to be you, even if the spectator may then overcome the boundary in a way by experiencing suffering as universal or generalised. So Catherine writes that compassion is not fervent identification, which reminds me of Ritabelsky's description of the tension inherent to reading as recognition mm. of a self or of a familiar situation. So, um, and so uh, her version of recognition holds a tension between scrutiny and then a kind of will to affirmation, which is often appropriation. Compassion's Edge is very sharp um, on the ways in which compassion negotiates the trickiness of dealing with the other when they are another person or of another religious persuasion or another national or ethnic origin. Um, 
But just as compassionate reading allows the reader to confront the otherness of others without erasing it, I start wondering if it allows you to confront the otherness of the self. I'm thinking here of a very specific example of um, the bit where you, talk, you cited Descartes' advice to Elizabeth in um, Elizabeth, Princess of Bohemia in chapter two, um, in the correspondence that kind of precedes the, uh, the writing of the text, The Passions of the Soul. I had actually been wondering whether the composition process of the passions of the soul could be understood as a kind of cordial mm. compassion mm. in the sense that fellow feeling between Descartes and Elizabeth gives rise to the text. And in, in, in the way that you um, show how Descartes treats uh, compassion and theatre and Elizabeth, I was struck by his advice to her that a great soul should read the world as they would read or watch a play. But as you point out in his model of theatre, you shouldn't see any similarity between your life and what you see on stage. So the proposition to see external events that might happen to you as like those of a play then seems predicated on a kind of alienation or dissociation from the mm. self. It's but, specifically with regard yeah. to the execution of her uncle, right? Right, yeah. 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 Um, but, but then in order to protect that secret interiority that, mm. you cite, that is mm. also the self. Mm. So... Um, I think that one of the things that I've really taken away from that whole chapter is the um, interaction between subjectivity and spectatorship. But and, and, and I'm wondering how that kind of dissoci is it dissociation how it might relate to the dissolved subjectivity that come that comes later. Mm. Okay, the second part of my response um, is related to this, but a bit different. So I was thinking about constructing a character and, and, and alienation being so part of the various compassionate processes. Um, and that made me think of a text that isn't in your book, but I wanted to try and try and do the kind of compassionate reading mm. of this text. Um, and because I think that the way you've treated um, confessional difference and um, intersubjectivity inter in this book has made me see that text differently. Okay, so this is a less well-known dialogue um, <laughs> written in Paris in 1593, and it's called Le Dialogue d'entre le Moustre et le Manon. So the dialogue between the Moustre, who's a, foot, a soldier of Henry IV, and Manon, who's like a citizen or burgher of Paris. Um, so it was written by a hardline Catholic in a period of truce. I think the idea of truce mm. is, is important in your book. Um, and so this dialogue consists of a discussion between these two citizens and they meet in a kind of liminal space on the border of a city. It's anti-spectacular and it's very thin on imagery and concrete details that aid visualisation. So the speakers are kind of like voices in a void. So the Moutre is this soldier of Henri de Navarre, so he's a moderate Catholic. And the Manon is a relatively lowly, fervently Catholic inhabitant of the town who abhors Henri and his conversion to Catholicism. So together in the dialogue, these speakers obsess over boundaries, the difficulty of living together, le vivre ensemble, and the difficulties of tolerating disagreement. Um, so I now am coming to see it as, a, as an articulation of, of various of Compassion's edges. Mm -hmm. um, the author, who is anonymous, but usually identified as um, François Cromé, essentially makes his own suffering and his disappointment into a kind of little piece of theatre. Um, the meeting is a strange one. They, the Maustre opens the discussion with the watchword, who goes there, which in French is qui vive, literally who lives, mm. and the Manon will not answer, a scene reminiscent of the opening of Hamlet, first performed, I think, six years later. Mm. Um, indeed, both texts evoke a generalised existential anxiety about identity, strangers in 16th century Europe, um, provoked by the context of unstable politics and uncertain um, royal succession and confessional conflict. In the dialogue, 
the answer to the watchword is essentially the matter of the 200 pages that ensue. Um, and I think that they, this uneasy kind of discussion about between Catholics about what to do about Protestants kind of sets the ground for the, for the next decades until the revocation of, of, of the Edict of Nantes and the, the kind of the territory that Catherine deals with in the book. During the discussion, the Maestre repeatedly attempts to mobilise the language of compassion, um, especially douceur, softness, and charity. The Maestre, uh, who's the supporter of the Protestant, then Catholic, King Henri, um, asserts that charity requires softness from the hardline Catholics. The Manon refuses this, saying that the King and his heretic supporters don't deserve that. That, you know, this, that, that kind of exchange happens over and over again. Um, and when the most asks for softness, he often asks for reason or reasonableness at the same time, showing an articulation of that pairing between reason, judgment and compassion that I thought of as a, 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 as merging in later writing, but maybe also at the end of the Wars of Religion. Mm -hmm. that, that's how you made yes, it. Yes, I think yeah. it. Yeah. Um, the final lines of the text show that these requests for compassion are denied. And it's actually the moderate would be compassionate, the most, who gives up and says that he will return to fighting because softness and reason have not worked. The Menon responds that while you are politique, so kind of these um, supposed moderate Catholics, and enablers of heretics, you will have neither reason nor gentleness. It's an ambivalent response that at once denies that his interlocutor's capacity for reason and gentleness and also refuses to offer him that mm. um, in return. So it's a hopeless stalemate and an example of compassion's failures. And yet, this unusual text was so successful at, at uh, conveying the moderate point of view that it was supposed to refute, that it was roughly edited and reissued as royalist propaganda soon after it was written. Um, and only the royalist version of the text, in fact, was known at all until the original manuscript was uncovered in the 19th century. Now, on the one hand, that doesn't seem like a very compassionate treatment of the text by its enemies who kind of erase the anger, but, but, but it's still there, but it's still there, because actually that it's not changed very much at all in the, in the royalist version. Um, the accepted theory is that the dialogue was definitely the work of a hardline Catholic, because um, there's this violent ending, or a potentially violent ending, and the text also shows insider knowledge of the Catholic council that ruled Paris before Henri was allowed to re-enter the city. But ultimately, the author is so successful at voicing the concerns of his enemy that he engages with differences by himself, <coughs> And despite his attempt to eradicate it, so in that way it seems to form that kind of dark network that you talk about in your epilogue, that Catherine talks about in her epilogue. Um, <laughs> and so an unwilling, unwittingly constructive relationship with the explicitly detested other. The start of the dialogue asks who lives, and throughout the dialogue they live together, albeit uneasily, under the threat of future violence. It's kind of their life, like um, the Protestant exiles of chapter five. Mm. So they live together without denying how much they resent each other. And, in that, and, they, and they keep going until, you know, for a really long time. And in that sense, I suppose that they compassionate together in the limited terms allowed by Furtier. And that does indeed seem tentatively and provisionally hopeful. Mm. Thank you. That's great. Um, that's, that's fantastic. I mean, I feel tempted to ask Catherine to respond, but I think perhaps we should proceed and then and respond. Yeah, yeah okay. Truth um, <laughs> that was a, a, a marvellous um, uh, comment on, the, on uh, 
um, Compassion's Edge and Compassionating. Um, obviously, as a specialist in English literature and knowing very little about um, the French Wars of Religion, um, I was deeply struck when I read the book by the profound way in which the different confessional histories of the um, two countries structure a difference between the afterlife of pity and compassion as a secular concept. Um, I was absolutely fascinated by the way that the clear contours of the study, bookended by the Edict of Nantes, 1598 at one end, and the Edict's revocation at the other, suggest that the huge range of writers and genres that you look at, Catherine, the Jesuits, the Jansenists, the Protestants, dramatists, essayists, writers of histoire tragique, of what we might call the novel, all contribute in their passing and defining of compassion to actually honing that edge of your title. Yet there's so many different discourses and vocabularies. There's the Aristotelian vocabulary of pity and terror, the stoic distinctions between uh, clemency and pity. Um, to, um, there's the rhetorically ekphrastic language of the um, spectacle that is pitoyable and the Jesuit remaking of a Pauline discourse of an inclusive caritas. And then you point out very nicely about the, how the Jansenist, um, there's a kind of overlap between the Jansenist and um, uh, the, the kind of discourse of civility that shows, that reveals the stakes of our own self-interest in our compassionate responses. And I was really surprised and delighted to see that. Yet all of, this, um, <laughs> all of these extraordinary attempts to negotiate or broker religious difference in France do more to structure difference than to create commonality. And the metaphor of the edge that you use isn't just um, division. I mean, you might think of a gap or a gulf. Mm. It's actually violence. Mm. Uh, and that, that just, that, I mean, um, it's, it's, it seems... Uh, not, not just, it's very much a less hopeful genealogy than the one we've been used to. So my first question is simply, is this what you expected when you set out to examine the discourses of compassion in 17th century France? Did you think that they would sharpen and define the edges of confessional division to this extent? Um, and um, I've got another couple of questions. Um, my second one is... Um, uh, I, I think Emma's already mentioned Rita Felsky, and um, in English literary studies at the moment, um, things have been shaken up a bit by an attack on the hermeneutics of suspicion. So I was just wondering where your book um, sort of sat in relation to that debate. It seemed to me as though um, if you think of your lit lit readings as literary ones, they, they're sort of suspicious to the extent that you're diagnosing figures and the working of language in ways that seem to reveal that what the rhetoric of the, the, the um, explicit rhetoric isn't isn't tr mm. trying to do. Um, on the other hand, there seemed to be another um, sort of movement in the book, which was to do with I think Lauren Berlant's idea of genre as um, organization of affective expectation, and there it seemed to me that that the the work you were doing with language in terms of theoretical debates was producing um, a narrative about affective organization that, that was then changing the idea of literary genre. So what you might be doing by looking at um, you know, Descartes' passing of Aristotle and then maybe, you know, um, there was that lovely bit about um, the Jesuit Jean-Baptiste de Saint-Juré who um, has a, has a discourse of um, caritas, and it seems very ecumenical and compassionate. And he has this um, 
he, he writes about the compassion of the elephant for a child in swaddling clothes. So it seems that we're even going cross species here and we're, compassion is just reaching out. But then um, in Catherine's analysis, it's very sort of skeptical and um, suspicious in a sense because she points out that this compassionate elephant comes at the expense of the figure of the wet nurse. Mm -hmm. So on the one hand, you have the cross species compassionate elephant. On the other hand, you have the sort of failed maternal, you have the paid substitute for the mother in, in the figure. And so in, in, in the way that you apply this to um, confessional difference, once again, you're compassionate at a distance to all sorts of other uh, people, except you're not very compassionate towards Protestants who are near, <laughs> nearby, you know, at home. Uh, I know, I mean, the, the, in the Jesuit discourse. Yes, yes not you personally. Um, but the way that that kind of analysis then affects the history of genre, it seems to me, is fascinating because when, uh, I mean, as, as um, I know little about Madame de Lafayette, but my understanding has been that one that you described, the liberal feminist narrative about choices and conventions. But when you put the reading of Lafayette into the context of the analysis you'd been doing, it felt impossible, especially as the novels are actually set um, in the period of the religious wars, it felt impossible not to read the marital misunderstandings and the marital uh, miscompassion, as you put it, in the novels in, as a comment on um, failures of toleration. Failures of yes, failures of living together, so yeah. compatir. So that, that seemed to me, and, and similarly with Racine and with the sort of theater of clemency, it seemed to me that there something was happening to genre as um, uh, affective organization. So just finally, if I can if, just briefly say something about English literature. And um, one thing that strikes me um, by comparison with English as opposed to French is that English, is le English literature, there's less theoretical discourse. So there's less theory about um, how you watch a play and there's less theory about Aristotelian, pity and terry and so on. Um, but some of the vocabulary feels a bit different as well. I mean, I think you make clemency and mercy synonymous. Mm. In English, clemency is absolutist, mm. yeah. and mercy is assimilated within a sort of legal discourse mm. to, um, to equity, which is actually quite hermeneutic. So there you have a discourse that's about being merciful um, because you understand the sort of causes and circumstances. So it's to do with telling the whole story. And here I would point to something like at the beginning of Shakespeare's Comedy of Errors, where the Duke says, the rigorous statue excludes all pity from our threatening looks, but he urges Aegean to tell his story. And he says, say the cause. Um, he says, for we may pity, though not pardon thee. And there, uh, saying the cause is, is the beginning of the whole play, which becomes, you know, being able to, yes. Um, but the gendering that you describe also seems in place. So um, women feel pity without knowing the cause. So in Lucrece, for example, after she's been raped, her maid um, weeps without knowing what's happened. And, and Shakespeare says, one justly weeps, the other takes in hand, no cause but company of her drops spilling. Their gentle sex to weep are often willing. So she, Lucrece is going to practice to tell her cause to the Roman lords, but her maid just weeps without knowing the cause. Mm -hmm. And that, you can't tell whether that's a good figure or a bad figure. Mm. <laughs> and finally, that feminine pitting seems to be embraced in Lear, where Edgar says that he's, when he sees the blind Gloucester, he's pregnant to good pity. 
by the art of known and feeling sorrow. So uh, yeah, I don't know if that if that undoes the gendering or not. So just to leave it with there some com comparisons. Uh, great. Well, th thank you so much for having me. It it's a real pleasure to be here, and it's an honor to be here because, as I mentioned before, so I'm a I'm a political theorist and a historian of political thought. But because of the political focus, it means that within Oxford, I fall within the social sciences, and that I never really get to come and talk to the humanists, uh, which is really too bad. Um, also, I just want to note. As I come to you as a, as a stranger and a visitor from social science, I would like to remark on the remarkable strangeness of the gender balance in this room <laughs> and the gender imbalance on this panel, which is not one with which I am all that familiar. So, yeah, it wasn't even difficult to do. <laughs> exactly, it wasn't even difficult to do. Um, anyway, thank you so much for having me and for giving me the chance to read this book. It's a wonderful book. It's a thoughtful book. It's a really generous book, and you really all should just read it. Um, I'm here because, as Catherine mentioned, I also published a book on early modern debates about religious toleration. Uh, it also came out in 2017, and it also was unexpectedly timely uh, and led to people other than political theorists and historians of political thought reading it, which was a bit of a shock. Um, but I guess there are two differences. So in my book, I focus on the concept of civility, and my focus uh, is really England and New England. Um, and the way that the, I'm interested in civility as a word that attaches to a concept in a particular moment in time. And so civility for me um, emerges in this particular period as a conversational virtue meant to, uh, meant to apply particularly to disagreement and to make disagreement tolerable. Right. So that's very much my interest in the book. How is the concept of civility being appealed to in early modern debates about religious toleration as a way of defining the limits of tolerable disagreement in a religiously plural society? Um, also, I suppose I should say uh, my, my book was also motivated with by big gripes with the 18th century. Yeah. And those who studied yeah, it. I knew we were, <laughs> we're just we're just on the same on the same page. Um, and so what I. I think my interest in civility really does mirror Catherine's interest in compassion, because what I noticed both in the 17th century and also in, in, at the time I was writing was the way in which people were appealing to civility as a conversational virtue that was meant in a way to set a standard for what's acceptable in <coughs> discourse in a tolerant society. Um, so like compassion, civility has an edge if you will, right? So um, to accuse someone of incivility is to set them beyond the pale. It's to suggest that they're not worth engaging with at all. And so I, in the book, I try to unpack this relationship between civility on the, on the one hand and tolerance on the other and understand how these concepts are relating. Um, so much like compassion and compassion's edge, and its connection to the limits of tolerance in early modern France, I'm interested in the way that civility is a way of drawing the limits of toleration in early modern England and New England. And so, but as a political theorist, you know, I'm interested in really breaking down the concepts and the arguments. And so one thing, I think basically what, what's going on in both cases is that when we're talking about toleration, we're actually, we're asking a question in three parts. Right? There are three questions involved with any consideration of toleration. One, how much difference can we bear? Two, how much must we share in order to make that difference bearable? And then three, where do we draw the line? 
right? There's the edge, right? There's the limit. And that's where, to, to pick up on something Lorna was mentioning, that's where the edge with civility, certainly, is, an, is, is a move from using our words to using our swords, right? We're failing to get along together. We're failing, the modus vivendi has come to an end. Um, so what I argue in the book is that that's, that's really, what, when people are talking about civility, they're basically answering the second question. How much must we share in order to make this difference bearable? I think the same exact thing is happening in discussions of compassion, right? What must we share? But the difference is that civility as a kind of conversational virtue is very much focused on external behavior and performance. In, indeed, I'm interested in it as a kind of embrace of benign and actually sort of essential hypocrisy in, in, in social life. Whereas compassion turns our focus inward, right? Compassion is a consideration of virtuous affect. And for those who want to point to compassion as the, as the answer to the second question of toleration, they're saying that coexistence depends on the sharing of a virtuous affect, right? And that's why it bites just so hard mm -hmm. in, in, the, in the authors that you're considering. What you find is that people continually begin to draw the lines of compassion to their co-religionists and co-partisans. And this wonderful example of what you call at one point theological gerrymandering. Yeah. Theological gerrymandering of fellow feeling, right? It's just really fantastic. Um, I, mean, I argue in the book that, in my book, that, uh, that there are in fact then different conceptions of civility that answer that question in different ways. Different people in the, per in the period are asking the same question, they're giving the same answer, civility, but they understand civility in really different ways. This has theological uh, implications, has political implications, and uh, it leads to really radically different uh, visions of what a tolerant society will look like and what's really possible in social life together. And so I'm kind of interested in just asking you if you did, if, we're, if there were such differences, because you're taking a quite uh, inclusive view of, of uh, compassion and its connected concepts in the period. And so I just, you know, it's partly just, you know, did, were there trends you noticed and, and, were the, and did they track theologically? Um, I suppose, but actually the way I, the place I would really want to push you though, is that, um, I mean, I ultimately decide that there is, you know, there's a superior conception of civility. It's what I call mere civility. It's an embracing of the limits of what's possible in social life. It's a basic willingness to say, not killing each other is pretty great. If that's the best we can do, let's at least do that. Um, and I connect that possibility precisely with mere civilities, rejection or, of, or sort of surrendering of the hope for virtuous affect, mm. right? And so I argue that actually mere civility on the model of, uh, of an evangelical like Roger Williams, who is the founder of Rhode Island, is in fact the most inclusive understanding of what we must share in a tolerant society. Because mere civility doesn't demand I not have contempt for you and your wrong, wrong views. It doesn't demand <laughs> that I not tell you so. In fact, it's really helpful. It's a really great way for me to tell you just what I think of you and your wrong, wrong views. Um, and for someone like Roger Williams, this is a theological insight, which is just to say the bond of charity cannot hold a civil society together. And so that, I think, is a position that becomes possible in a particular theological context. I think it's a position that becomes possible in a particular colonial 
and uh, geographical context. I mean, he's in Rhode Island. He's rounding a sort of a, a society that no one would ever plan. No one would ever theorize <coughs> toleration in this way, but they might hit on this if they were forced to practice it. And so I just wonder if that position is available in the French debates. I sort of, I sort of think it's probably not. Um, and that, and for me, then that would be a kind of limit of of, of compassion uh, as a way of thinking about this question at all. Mm -hmm. Because insofar as we want our compassion to be inclusive, the the concept is just not fit for purpose. Those kinds of so, if we rely on fellow feeling as the bond of a tolerant society, we are doomed right. that, yeah. to exclusion. <laughs> right, and I, I figured that's where you come. Yeah. Okay, but so then this is where I flip it back to you, yeah. right? So in the beginning of the book, you sort of endorse the suspicion of tolerance in this way mm -hmm. by people like Wendy Brown or Kirsty McClure, basically people who think that tolerance itself is a kind of discourse of a discourse of power, a civilizing discourse that's about othering, othering, you know, non-Western, non-religious, etc. And you sort of like, you cite that and you kind of endorse it. And I just wonder if that's really adequate because my response to Brown and, and McClure is simply to say, yes, tolerance is a civilizing discourse. Yes, civility is a civilizing discourse. And yet some civilizing discourses are better than others, <laughs> right? So it's not enough to, the critique just doesn't suffice there. You do actually have to give an account of how you're gonna evaluate, right? And then if the bar of evaluation is, a, is, is inclusion, then I argue you should agree with me and sort of reject affect <laughs> as, as anything we should be striving for in a tolerant society. And then just on the final point, I mean, this brings me to a point that, that Lorna raised. And again, you know, maybe it's just those of us working in English are just really excited about conceptual distinctions. <laughs> we aren't, aren't in place other places. But it just seems to me that in your quite um, impressive and, you know, really sound determination to not adopt an artificially narrow construction of what compassion is versus pity. Mm -hmm. You do cast the net quite widely in looking at all of this kind of cluster of concepts, mm -hmm. you know, related mm -hmm. to fellow feeling. So uh, pitié, compassion, um, humanity, and also amity mm -hmm. at one point, friendship, right? The kind of friendship that we feel for the species. And I guess the, the, my question and also worry there is that in fact, there are kind of important differences among those in terms of whether they figure uh, are if they as they figure fellowness as a matter of similarity, the extent to which we're semblable, or different. So I mean, to, just roughly, I would want to say compassion and humanity say, want to found a society on on a on a perception of similarity, and that's something that Pierre Rosenvallon picks mm -hmm. up in his new book on a society of equals to say that a society of equals needs to be a society of similars in this way, people who see each other as similar. Whereas pitié and amity, I would say, actually have an understanding of connection through difference, where there's a kind of distinction. Mm -hmm. uh, and I don't know, again, that I'm a political theorist wanting to impose conceptual neatness. I mean, <laughs> can I come in on Yes, that? please. Yeah, that's but it. I think, I mean, that, <laughs> thank you. That was terrific. Um, Lorna, you asked if that was what I was expected when I wrote the book. Yeah. I don't, yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm now expecting to have 10 hours to respond to all this. This is terrific. Thank you. Um, that question of uh, disciplinary difference, linguistic difference, the observance of those differences. I remember early on thinking that I, I would need to provide a kind of spreadsheet with the shifting senses of these terms. I'm pity and compassion. 
uh, that's probably, in fact, how I came to it. Um, my Bush era noticing of these terms, to me, they seem to be very different. And in 17th century writing, they chiefly, um, they're not different in French. So there's a kind of overlapping similarity and difference in the vocabulary structures as well as in the, the kind of social scores. Um, I was really struck. Uh, it seems to me that, I mean, there are, if I can um, divvy up the sorts of ways that you people have responded to this. One is um, as a kind of literary concern about ways of reading, right? And I was very struck, Emma, by your really um, lovely sense that that reappropriation of the text in the 19th century might be a kind of leaning across difference, that that's a sort of compassionate editorial practice or something. Mm. Um, and uh, that leads me to, to Lorna's questions about the kinds of the, how I would identify as a reader. Um, I think I say in the epilogue that this form of suspicion is familiar as a kind of post-Foucauldian or post-Frankfurt yes. school trick, yeah. right? And I'm, I'm certainly, I think, in this book, caught up within that, whereas in the, uh, as you've seen in the waterwork, so, yeah. I've become a surface reader. Um, <laughs> um, I don't know that I expected to be quite as suspicious of compassion as, as I as, as I as I came to be. I didn't um, really think it would be such a mean book, but I think something that um, that Teresa is describing the sort of endorsement of the critique of tolerance in the first part of the book. You're right that I need to move from there, and I think that the way that I moved within the book, I think about the sort of history of writing it, um, means that at the end, I was trying to make gestures to a, a sort of what I was calling earlier the scarcely perceptible gestures of compassion that were really about aesthetics or a literary form. And I sort of dropped the social project and needed to think more about how those two things related to one another. That is, um, maybe I didn't drop the social project. I came to want reading to be described as a social project more deliberately mm. um, and to think about that kind of um, what happens when we read, what happens when we read the past and what happens when we watch uh, the readers of the past reading each other. Um, and that's why at the end it reaches out to a set of largely contemporary readers or readers of the contemporary. Um, Emma's extraordinary account of the qui vive, that kind of Hamlet-like hailing, the address, also makes me think the relation between a kind of conventional form and the emotion or force that's within it. One of the things that I think I really um, came to writing the book but didn't quite articulate as I did it, but I've really been thinking about it since then, partly because people have been soliciting me to do other kinds of work on emotion, um, is to what extent there is a real emotion or life, as you might call it, within conventional rhetorical forms, right? Mm. So um, many of the things I was thinking about uh, in this book, when I would describe them to people, they would say, oh, well, that's just a rhetorical formula. Uh, and especially in the chapter on affect, what I call affective absolutism, I was trying to work out what room there might be for thinking about real emotion, whatever mm. such a thing might be, within rhetorical um, set pieces. Um, and, you know, that's a sort of hopeless and doomed task, but it's something I feel committed to in part because it, it, it brings <coughs> home to us something about the surprises of reading, the contingent moments at which a rhetorical formula that may seem trite suddenly <coughs> doesn't seem so trite anymore. Um, uh, yeah, so those, those, and the book 
it, it's not an accident that I have a political theorist and, uh, and, and literature people here. And I think at various moments, um, it manages to make those things speak to each other. Um, and then in the end, I, I go off on a, on a literary um, expedition. Um, what else can I say to all these things? I think we'll have to leave it there because we've got um, someone else coming into this room at, at two, but um, I want to thank everyone. And um, just, uh, Teresa said that this was a, you know, a thoughtful and generous book and you should all read it. I'd like to add that it's a very witty book as well. It's absolutely uh, full of the most fantastic <laughs> phrases. Um, and I failed to say that it was also the winner of the 2018 um, Society for Renaissance Studies. So it's won a, um, a prize as well. And um, I'm sure you're all going to hasten out and read and, and buy Compassion's Edge and get sold out again. So thank you very much, thank you Catherine. So much. Thank you. Really?